whether you're working with homeless people, whether you're working with youth, whether you're working with immigrants and refugees, I think you have to ask yourselves, am I loving them and respecting their choices as I would my own? And if the answer is, I don't know, or no, well, that needs to be interrogated. Welcome to Beyond Soundbites podcast. I'm Jacob Mel. This project explores the truth that God created every single person who takes on the title of refugee, immigrant, or asylum seeker and loves him or her with a depth we cannot comprehend. So far, we have focused on stories related to the U.S. Refugee Resettlement Program. If you're new to the podcast, you can revisit episodes 1 through 10 to hear first-hand stories from displaced people in Turkey. I don't have any place where I could say, yes, this is my home. As well as insights into the Trump administration's dramatic policy changes related to refugee resettlement. When the United States shut down the door, it affects whole the globe. In episode 11, we shift our focus to Central America, specifically the region called the Northern Triangle, Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. In recent years, the number of people from Northern Triangle countries seeking entry to the U.S. has jumped dramatically. For example, in fiscal year 2016, around 70,000 people from the Northern Triangle traveling as family units were apprehended by U.S. Border Patrol at the U.S.-Mexico border. With two months remaining in fiscal year 2019, that number has already multiplied almost sixfold to nearly 400,000. A complex web of factors drive migration from the Northern Triangle countries. The push factors include poverty, corruption, organized crime, gang-controlled communities, and food insecurity. Factors that draw people to the U.S. include economic stability, safety and opportunity for their children, reuniting with family, and more. For years, highly politicized rhetoric and rapid policy change have kept border communities and the people gathered there front and center in U.S. news cycles. But author and immigration advocate Karen Gonzalez reminds us that the stories of people on the move always matter because they matter to a God who sees, knows, and loves each person we call immigrant, refugee, or asylum seeker. In fact, Karen's recent book is titled The God Who Sees, Immigrants, the Bible, and the Journey to Belong. It's anchored in her own journey coming from Guatemala to the U.S. as a child in the 1980s and also draws insights from the scriptures and from her work with immigrants and refugees at World Relief. In this episode, we'll hear a selection from Karen's book followed by a conversation with the author. This section of the story picks up after her family moved to the U.S., They ended up in South Los Angeles, where she attended an African-American Pentecostal church with her grandmother. One day, Miss Vivian, the Sunday school teacher at my grandmother's church, asked if I wanted to be baptized. I was a 10-year-old fifth grader, and Miss Vivian thought that was old enough for me to make a decision about my own life of faith. I said an enthusiastic yes. I didn't mention to her that I had already been baptized in the Catholic Church in Guatemala. Miss Vivian led me through a pair whose words I mostly didn't understand and then gave me a certificate. It looked a bit like the one I'd gotten at school for perfect attendance, and it said I was now a Christian. My abuelita was ecstatic, and so was Miss Vivian. On the day of this second baptism, this receiving and confirming of my Christian faith, I wore a white gown. 
Miss Vivian asked me if I would pray with her before I went up to the baptismal pool with Pastor Price. I agreed, and she surprised me by asking me to pray. I shook my head, but she insisted. Can I pray in Spanish? I mumbled. She knelt down to my level and said, yes, but no reciting. It has to be your own prayer from your heart. Miss Vivian was always gentle, but firm. I can say Psalm 23 in Spanish, I offered, looking at my feet. Can you just say some simple words to Jesus about what you want for him? Remember the story of Bartimaeus and how Jesus asked him what he wanted? All Bartimaeus said was that he wanted to see. That was his whole prayer. I want to see. Just tell Jesus what you want from him. I didn't really remember about Bartimaeus. Miss Vivian was generous, and she grossly overestimated my understanding of our Sunday school classes in English. Yet she understood that it was important for me to name my desire in Christ's presence, that this would be an important element in my spiritual life. I closed my eyes and said my first prayer in English using my own words. Jesus, I want to know you. Amen. And it was true. I did want to know Jesus, even though I didn't quite know what that meant. Then I went forward for the full immersion baptism, so different from the sprinkling water I'd seen poured on my brother and sister when they were babies. Pastor Price and I walked into the pool at the front of the sanctuary. He put one hand on my back and one on my head, and he dunked me backward until the water rushed over my face. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, he said. Then he swooped my head out of the water in one swift motion. Welcome to your new life in Christ, little girl, he said with a grin, and ushered me out of the pool. My joyful abuelita received me on the other side, hugging me close despite my soaking wet gown. You're listening to Karen Gonzalez read from her book, The God Who Sees. She goes on to describe more of her family's early years in South Los Angeles. Even after that, my favorite part of attending church with Abuelita remained the chocolate chip pancake she treated me to before the service. With my limited English, I couldn't really understand everything that happened at church. But I knew it made her happy that I went with her. And I did want to know God in some way. This was our special time, our shared experience, and no one else's. My parents continued to be skeptical of Christian faith especially the variety of faith demonstrated at this strange Pentecostal church with services that went on for hours. They worked all the time, and they were tired with that exhaustion that only immigrants who know no Sabbath can experience. This fact translated to their lack of availability to us as children, which meant that they largely ignored my church attendance. Even when they were present, they were not really there. Their adjustment to life in a new country wasn't as smooth as mine appeared to be. My mother talked all the time about working just a little bit longer and then going back to Guatemala. She was miserable and lonely, and she missed the lively community of staff at the rehabilitation hospital where she had worked for her entire nursing career. 
Now she did elder care in a private home, traveling over an hour by bus each way to Studio City to spend her long days in the company of an old man who didn't speak Spanish and was slowly descending into dementia. My father, a bright college-educated man nicknamed Socrates in his university days, could only get work doing maintenance at a hotel near Disneyland. His first task of the day was to pick up garbage with a stick on the hotel grounds. For the first time in his adult life, my father didn't have a car, nor a job that required any intellectual engagement. The hotel where he worked was located in the next county, so he took a bus for the long journey back and forth. When I was in college studying English literature, I came across a poem called Elegy Written in a Country Churchyard by Thomas Gray. The speaker of the poem laments the lost potential of the poor villagers buried in a churchyard and wonders aloud what these humble people might have accomplished if they hadn't been constrained by their condition. I immediately thought of my father's lost intellectual potential as he went about his early days in America. Did the tourists staying at the hotel even suspect that they were walking past a man who read Marx and Plato and Dostoevsky? Did they acknowledge him at all? My father, like all the workers upon whose labor their vacations were built, was likely invisible to them. Since my parents' time was no longer their own and was largely devoted to work, my brother, sister, and I spent lots of time in front of the television, and no one really took notice. I have few memories of watching television in Guatemala, but in Los Angeles we watched lots of it. Every cartoon from Scooby-Doo to He-Man, and every TV show from Happy Days to Chips to Silver Spoons. We were rapidly learning English and loved these shows. We marveled at the egalitarian relationship between TV parents and TV kids. Were American families really like that in real life? Did American kids get to have opinions that influenced parents' decisions about moving across the country or buying a new house or getting a dog? the way the ones on television did? We may as well have been watching aliens from another planet. So far was their experience removed from us. Not only did they not look or sound like us or our parents, they didn't live like us. On television, American kids cared about having their own rooms and their own private space. But in our culture, your room was mostly just for sleeping. La familia, not the individual, is the central and most important institution in our culture. Life is lived in the living room and kitchen where the family gathers. And in our cramped apartment, there were only two bedrooms, but seven of us, so we had beds in the living room too. My fourth grade teacher once distributed a handout and asked us to draw a picture of our room on it. I slept in the living room where my brother and sister also had bunk beds, but I didn't want her to know that. So I drew a picture of my abuelita's room, passing it off as my own and hoping the teacher wouldn't find out the truth. I felt ashamed at how different I was from the norm and I wanted to hide my otherness from everyone at school. It was strange for me in those early years in Los Angeles to think about my Guatemalan childhood, which had been filled with carefree time, playing and exploring with neighborhood kids after school. My childhood in Los Angeles had few toys. We had left those behind in Guatemala. And playing outside in a neighborhood where drug deals could be seen through the window of our second-story apartment was out of the question. Besides, I couldn't have told you where my classmates lived 
even if you had offered me all the jelly beans in the world. The only respite from my monotonous school days and hours of watching television were those long Sundays at church. Like Bartimaeus, I didn't know that I had a deeper need to belong and to have meaning and purpose. My days were long and dull, and I felt so much the outsider everywhere I went. But that event, in which I was plunged into the waters of my second baptism, made me feel seen by God. God saw our little apartment in the urban school where we struggled to learn English. God saw the loneliness and struggles of my parents. God saw my uncle Chachi working at Burger King and attending classes in the evening. God saw my abuelita reading her Bible in a bedroom of a Brentwood mansion after a long day of work. And God saw me too. God saw a bewildered girl in a new country walking to school with her brother. All I knew that day of my second baptism was that I wanted more of God than I had in that moment and that I had the capacity to reach for more of God. Karen's story and voice remind us that many immigration and displacement journeys go hand-in-hand with a faith journey of some sort. And it's a reminder for me personally that those of us who were born as citizens and are several generations removed from the immigration experience of our families will always be limited in how we understand immigration and refugee issues. We will never own the pursuit of justice in this area or be able to speak about it like those who have lived it. But we can make listening a part of our work, and we can approach that work together with immigrant communities in mutuality. After she shared from her book, Karen and I discussed that word, mutuality, what it means and what it looks like in practice. It's too complex to summarize in a few words, so we circled around it in our conversation, getting a clearer idea with each pass as Karen gave examples and told stories. For people like myself, that is, white people, or as she prefers to put it, members of the dominant culture, Karen started with a challenge to pay attention to our language. You know, I understand the heart and intention of people. For example, we use these terms, you know, welcome the stranger. And in my neighborhood, all kinds of people have put up signs in their window that say things like, you can live in our neighborhood, you can be our neighbor. I appreciate this. I appreciate these messages like, we welcome refugees. I think it's a very good thing, but I think it's only the beginning of the conversation. Perhaps it's the entry point for people when they realize this is what the Bible says. But, you know, the Bible speaks a lot to mutuality because, for example, the Bible says you should love the immigrant stranger as yourself. You shall do justice for them as yourself. So there's a mutuality there, right? It's like what you would do for you, for yourself, and for your own, you should also do for the immigrant in your midst. And that's what Yahweh commands, and that's what you see, for example, in the book of Ruth. You see this beautiful like mutuality where Ruth is welcomed, but Ruth also brings a lot of gifts and talents that the people of Bethlehem recognize. They recognize her love and her loyalty. They recognize her hard work and her kindness. They recognize that she brought her whole self into this community. 
And she says these words that we've taken as wedding readings. <laughs> and she's talking about, no, I am coming to integrate fully into your community. And I'm going to worship your God and I'm going to be holy there. And this is, this is what immigrants do when they come into communities. And yet it's not something we recognize. We often talk about what we do, how we welcome, how we invite, how we want people to be our neighbors. So the, so the we are at the center of the conversation. We, the dominant culture, I mean, right? But what if we could recognize that not only do we welcome, but also they are bringing many gifts into our communities. Sometimes when I've talked about this, people say, well, you know, it's just words. What's the big deal? But words really do matter. Words really shape reality. We have this verse in John chapter 1, verse 1, that says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So something as light and airy as a Word became flesh in Jesus. And I think that's really powerful and beautiful. And I've seen a lot of words take on flesh and sometimes for destructive means and sometimes for life-giving means. And the words that we use deeply affect the way that we will engage with other people and the way that we will view them. And so I prefer, instead of immigrants, to say neighbors because our neighbors are just like us. Whereas sometimes I feel like the word immigrant and refugee, asylum seeker, causes us to only see people as the other rather than recognize that their humanity is our humanity. We have a shared humanity. And so that's really what I mean when I'm talking about mutuality. This is Sharon Schmidt in Kitchener, Ontario, with the Refugee Highway Partnership North America. We're so glad you're listening, and we hope you'll join us to hear more from Karen Gonzalez in person at our annual roundtable. On October 23rd to 25th, 2019, we're going to gather at People's Church in Toronto. It's a chance to learn, network, pray, and collaborate with others from across Canada and the United States who are engaged in service to forcibly displaced people. Visit rhpna.com to learn more. As our conversation continued to circle around the idea of mutuality, Karen shared a story that illustrates how a mindset of mutuality played out for one team of service providers. You know, my friend Sandy was telling me about a situation. Uh, she was resettling, working for a resettlement agency in Southern California, also, also connected to World Relief. And they had a family that was coming from overseas. They were receiving this refugee family. But it turned out this refugee family, not only was it a big family, but they also had a dog, a husky. And they were bringing this dog with them. And 
Having worked in resettlement, Jake, I know you know how hard it is to find housing. Now imagine finding housing that will also accept a big dog, like a husky. And my friend said, you know, all of us in the office were so upset about this. Like, how dare they bring this dog with them? I would have probably felt the same. <laughs> yes, right? And yet my friend said, you know, but I know lots of people here in the U.S. that when they move, they take their pet with them. They don't leave their pet behind in the old house where they used to live. And they make sure to find housing, right, that will take the pet. And she said, we felt ashamed for not wanting this family to keep their pet that had brought them comfort, that had been a, a sort of sense of home for them since they had left their home country. And we proceeded to find housing for them where they could bring that dog and I really appreciated that perspective and that she recognized it at the time, you know, and really recognized the dignity that this family deserved, including having the choice to bring their dog. <laughs> wow. And so, yeah, these are the kinds of things I'm talking about with mutuality, and they're very nuanced. And we don't realize sometimes that we're putting different expectations uh, on immigrant people you know, my friend could have said, well, these people should just be grateful that they get to come here and they don't get to bring their dog, right? Instead of just respecting them as people who make choices just like we do, I think we have to ask those questions. Am I, whether you're working with homeless people, whether you're working with youth, whether you're working with immigrants and refugees, I think you have to ask yourselves, am I loving them and respecting their choices as I would my own? And if the answer is, I don't know, or no, well, that needs to be interrogated. What about mutuality in the work of advocacy? Karen said that it's hard to achieve, but she has seen it done on occasion, including on a trip that she recently took to visit border communities with a ministry called Matthew 25. And so that trip I took to the border I thought was beautiful because it was organized with immigrants, with people in the dominant culture, and everyone took part equally. We were led um, by a group of, you know, young people who were immigrants, children of immigrants, and all of us learned so much. You know, part of what happened on that trip that I thought was so powerful is we met people on the Mexico side of the border, Mexican pastors, Mexican church communities, Mexican shelters, often faith-based shelters, and we heard about all the good work that they're doing. It was I was so heartened and so encouraged. It just reminded me of, of Mary, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, because I think she she says this wholehearted yes to God, and she doesn't know what she's saying yes to, but she trusts that God is at work and thinks she can't see or understand. And that's what I thought of when I went there. I thought, God, I had no idea you were at work in this way. But they led us into these conversations with these particular people, because guess what? They're fluent Spanish speakers. They have built relationships across the border on both sides of the border communities. Mm -hmm. And I believe I got to see an aspect of the border that a lot of people don't see, 
don't see this part of the borderlands because often they're being um, brought over by perhaps people who belong to the dominant culture. I want you to see, and isn't it so sad? Look at all these asylum seekers. Look at all this sadness and tragedy rather than look and see God is at work here. Yes, there is more work to be done, but God has not abandoned us. And that's what I learned from that trip. And I'm deeply grateful that I had a chance to go to the borderlands and that I got to go with those particular people. It should be no surprise that places full of pain, fear, and chaos are the places where God is mysteriously at work or that his vision is centered on people those of us in the dominant culture tend to look past and through. But somehow we always need to be reminded. The God who sees immigrants, the Bible, and the journey to belong is an engaging and a powerful reminder. I hope you'll buy it and read it. I hope you'll come hear Karen in person in Toronto this October. And I hope you'll tune in to episode 12, a bonus episode featuring more conversation with Karen Gonzalez. We'll cover the function of story in raising awareness, the nuance of narrative, and the variety of voices needed for effective advocacy. You know, as an immigrant person, it's difficult for me to engage people in conversations about immigration because it's deeply personal. I can't distance myself from it and discuss it like some kind of intellectual exercise. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond Soundbites. If you enjoyed it, you should know that we're in the early stages of production with another series of narrative episodes for spring 2020. This series will bring listeners to the U.S.-Mexico border communities and to Central America. To get it done, we need your help. Find out how to donate and support at beyondsoundbitespodcast.org or rhpna.com. Beyond Soundbites is created in collaboration with the Refugee Highway Partnership North America, a network of churches, ministries, and individuals supporting refugees and asylum seekers across the U.S. and Canada. Other organizational partners include the Refugee Language Program, Exodus World Service, Tucson Refugee Ministry, Local Community Partners, and Abounding Service. John and Valerie Guerra created the theme music. The rest of the songs are by Chris Dingman. Matthew Sorens provided content guidance for this episode. Special thanks to Sarah Ardema, Hannah Bonifacius, Megan Wine, and Jillian Schlossberg for editorial support. This episode was mixed by Matt McQueen at Gem City Studios in Jellicoe, Tennessee. 